Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. From baseball's top personalities. The Hall of Famer, one of the great TV broadcasters, Bob Costas is here on A's Cast Live. To the A's legendary players. Five-time Major League Baseball home run champ, Mark McGuire is with us here. You never know what stories you're going to hear. We used to come out here to lunch and run with our shirts off. (laughs) (laughs) You would say. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Time now for another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. We got some media guys for you, some powerhouses from the USA Today, Bob Nightingale from ESPN, Kylie McDaniel from MLB.com to talk draft, Jonathan Mayo. But one of my all-time favorites, he's been joining me for so many years around A's baseball. Here's my guy, Bob Nightingale. Let's go to the top columnist in all of baseball. You read him, USA Today, the great Bob Nightingale back here on A's Cast Live. Bob, how are you? It's been a while. Yeah, doing great. How are you, how are you doing, buddy? Uh, we're doing well. And, you know, I was just saying, as we're about to head to the All-Star break, we got a lot of interesting stories. You know, you already got the front runners out there, especially for us in the American League with the Yankees and the Astros. They're great teams. But then all of a sudden you got this unbelievable story with the Orioles. Look out for the Phillies in the National League without Bryce Harper. We're starting to get some good fun here in the summer. Yeah, I was just looking this morning, Chris. We've got 20 teams, uh, you know, that are within two uh, two games out in a wild card spot. So just, you know, 10 games are uh, further out. This is uh, three games back or more in the, in the loss column. So, yeah, it's fun to see a team like Baltimore, who's been so bad for so long, you know, losing, uh, you know, 100 games year after year, finally starting to turn around. I mean, for them to be almost 500 in the AL East, uh, you know, can you imagine what it's like if they're in a different division? And remember now, it will help them next year because there's more balanced play. You're not playing in the same, uh, you know, division 19 times. It's down to 14 times. Everybody plays everybody. Yeah, and we were just talking about that with Mike Elias. It was like, please don't trade guys off. I, I understand if you don't want to be a player at the trading deadline and you're just going to stick with what you got and let it ride. The last thing I would want to see is here they are. They're only two games back in the wild card. They're right in this thing. They're one of the hottest teams in baseball. Their bullpen's been good all year long. Their starting pitching has definitely come around. Rushman has come up and given them some energy. They're a lot of fun to watch. But all of a sudden, if you just throw up the white flag, it's like baseball added, Bob, these extra wild cards for these type scenarios, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I know they're, they're thinking, oh, this is a fluke. We're not going to keep, you know, keep it on, uh, you know, we got to move these guys because we're not going to bring them back. But I'm with you. Unless you get something real decent in return, 
hang on to those guys because then you're just tearing up the clubhouse. Oh, thanks guys for winning. Oh, by the way, now we're going to tear it up, tear it down again. I mean, not, they're going to strip it down like you did before, but guys like Trey Mancini, who's, you know, so important to them and those, that, those sort of things would be moved. So I hate to see that. Remember last year with the uh, sale was kind of hanging the race and they traded their, their closer, Grayman to a Houston. They fell apart after that. It's like the players are saying, wait a minute now. If you don't believe in us, why should we believe, we believe in us, ourselves? So, you know, they went down for a while. You know, they came back. But, you know, they missed that. You've got, you got to be careful because you're uh, upsetting the entire clubhouse. And I think about the Orioles franchise. You know, for some of us who are older, we remember how great the Oriole way was. And for even older, mm-hmm. age, you know, Long-time A's fans remember the battles that the Orioles and the A's had in the 70s where both teams had so many Hall of Famers. And then, you know, you think about Cal Ripken Jr. And you think about all, you know, the guy guy won one World Series. You thought he'd play in a ton of World Series. That never happened. But you just think about that franchise. It's truly one of the great franchises in baseball. But the problem is, Bob, I think a lot of young fans, they just look at the Orioles as a bunch of losers. And that's sad because Charm City was always looked at as one of the best baseball towns and the Orioles as one of the best best organizations, I mean, since you've been covering the game. No, you're right, Chris. I mean, just such great baseball tradition then there. Uh, gorgeous ballpark. I mean, it's still one of the most beautiful ballparks in, in America. I mean, you can argue with number one if you want to. Uh, but you're right. I mean, all those years with the, uh, you know, Cal Ripken and Murray and, you know, Ripken Sr., Frank Robinson, uh, on and on, you know, Don Baylor. Uh, great history there, great t- tradition. And yeah, when you speak of the Oral Way, I remember getting a copy of the, uh, uh, from the Orioles official, uh, the Orioles Way. I remember reading it, it was just fascinating. This is how the cutoffs work. This is, you know, uh, you know, rotating around uh, in different scenarios. So they they play the game right. They play it to win. And, uh, yeah, people forget that. So it's cool to see that franchise coming back around. You know, if you look at the National League West, Cody was just down seeing Bob Melvin and the Padres take on the Giants. And you look at all the injuries that the Dodgers have, but yet – the Dodgers are still the Dodgers. It's like we talk about this every year. They got problems, but they just keep winning. And you look up, and San Diego is eight games back. The Giants are 12 and a half games back. They're just 43 and 41 after winning 107 games uh, last season, which was a franchise record, both San Francisco and New York. Is there anything do you think that the Padres or the Giants can do here? before the deadline to catch the Dodgers? Or is this the Dodgers winning again? We're going chalk, and the Padres and the Giants are just fishing for a wild card. Yeah, they're going to go be wild card. I, I, you know, a month ago, Chris, uh, I thought the Padres were going to win the division. You know, when the Walker Bueller went down, uh, the Padres were playing great. Obviously, they have like six or seven starters. Uh, that's, man, they're doing all this without, you know, without Tatis. And Machado was just coming off the injury list. But, yeah, just kind of, uh, you know, hit a wall here. So, I mean, I don't think the Giants have any chance to win the division. They're way too, you know, way too far back. I think they're battling for a wild card spot. And I think the Padres are, too. It's, the Padres may be a thing, you know. I mean, the Padres will get in the playoffs. They're too, too tall of a team. Got too great of a manager not to get in. You know, they're, they're, they might be, okay, do we get the number one, number two, or number three spot among the wild card teams? 
their big thing is probably just making sure they get home field advantage for that first round. Yeah, the Dodgers. I mean, wait. I mean, what can you say about their front office and Dave Roberts? I mean, when you look at the injuries that they have, the amount of injuries, and to think most teams, if you start talking about all, I got a list of all these guys that are out right now and guys who are out for the year. I mean, if most teams, if you had all these guys out, your team sunk. How do the Dodgers just keep doing it? Well, you know, they just say, I don't know if they scout any better, but they uh, develop great. I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, the players that just come up to their system. Uh, I talked to scouts, and they say at A-ball, they got five guys who are legitimate major league starters. Uh, they got a catcher. They say, you know, would be the uh, in a couple of years when he hits the big leagues, he'd be the, the Cartagena, will uh, be a perennial All Star, one of the best catchers in baseball. So they keep producing these guys. Uh, you know, we'll see how long, long it lasts. And you catch breaks too. I mean, Tony Gonsolin, anybody could have had Tony Gonsolin last year, even during the winter. And who knew, you know, that'd be you know eleven or twelve or whatever he is, uh, you know, pitching lights out. So it's uh. It's unbelievable, and you know they're. It'd be interesting too to see what they do at the trade deadline. I think they got to get some back end bullpen help. Uh, Kimball's a little shaky back there. If Milwaukee really trades Hater, and they're listening on Hater, that would be a perfect fit for uh, the Dodgers to grab Hater. You know we're taking on the Texas Rangers here before the All Star break. The A's are going to end up Texas, then Houston. Uh, Houston, an absolute juggernaut. They are so impressive. Uh, we'll get to them in a second, but I look at Corey Seager, 10 years, $325 million. You know how much we love Marcus Simeon, but seven years, $175 million. Uh, they're 39 and 44, 16 games back in the West. How do you think they feel about these contracts, and, and how, how do you like the way Texas has gone about trying to rebuild their franchise? Well, I mean, uh, you know, it's too early to judge the first year of the contract, and both guys are underachieved, particularly uh, Simeon so far. But, yeah, I mean, all they have to do is look at their own division at the Angels. I mean, the Angels have star players, too, and they threw all kinds of money, you know, at uh, Trout and Rendon and those sort of things. You ain't pitching to win. Uh, you got to be dominant. And one of the worst things the Angels ever did was uh, when they tried to get Garrett Cole, and he says, I'm going to go to Yankees instead. They threw the money at uh, Anthony Rodon. It's been a complete bust. You know, one of the worst contracts in baseball history, you know, so far. And uh, look, you know, look where it gets them. You, you got to have a complete team. You got to have depth. You know, we talked about the Dodgers. They got depth. These teams like the uh, you know Rangers and uh, Angels don't have it. You know, one of the things we love to talk about is MVP and the MVP race. And I get it if we just look at just pure numbers. You can look at it that way. I like to put it into context and actually look more into it. And it's like, I don't want to bag on Shohei Otani, but when the Angels lost 14 in a row and it cost Joe Madden his job, he hit 209. Over the weekend, they got swept by the Angels. He hit 200 in the series. Uh, Only had one game where he was productive. The other three games, he took an offer. When you start looking at, you know, Jordan Alvarez, who, my God, is a beast with the uh, Astros playing on a great team. You look at Judge, what he's doing in New York on a great team. Shohei Otani, though, the unicorn. You've got to vote for MVP. When you start to look at it kind of towards the midway point, how are you seeing it? 
Well, yeah, to me, it's, uh, yeah, judge one, uh, uh, Al- Alvarez two, you know, going in and probably, uh, the Ramirez at Cleveland three, you know, I, I vote for the National League living in Phoenix National League city. Uh, I, I certainly wanted to have Otani or Trout in the, in the top five. Uh, it's not, you know, I don't know what's wrong. It's where, where this has changed, but a lot of these voters now, uh, vote for whoever has the best stats. It's not the best player award. It's most valuable player award. I mean, you and I could replace Otani and the Angels would stink and win, win any more games and maybe lose a few more, but that's it. It's, a, you know, help a team win. Remember when Kurt Gibson won it in 88, yeah. the Dodgers? It's like a, uh, you know, Strawberry had much better uh, numbers. Uh, Terry Pendleton didn't have the same numbers as Bonds the year when uh, 91 with Atlanta and won the MVP. But it's just about best player, and why didn't we vote Barry Bonds uh, MVP 15 straight years? I mean, it's it's viable, and the viable to me is helping your team win. You're right. Proud and uh, Sano Otani were nowhere to be found during those uh, those series against the Yankees and the uh, and the Astros. So you know, it's like last year. People say, "Oh, how about Juan Soto?" Well, you look at the Nationals' record. I don't care if he walks a million times or not. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to walk it. You're going to walk a guy if you have a bad lineup. But does it make him viable? I think I put him fifth or sixth, and. Some people had him first, which I thought was a joke. Yeah, no doubt about it. I think about like when King Felix won the Cy Young Award with a 500 record, but when you really delve into it, not only did he pitch well, but and he had, he had like the great ERA, but he had great numbers against teams that were 500 or better. So when you really delved into the numbers, Bob, you saw by far this guy was the best, and that's why he won the AL Cy Young Award. Oh, exactly. I mean, if there was a guy right now for the A's uh, hitting, you know, on pace to hit 60 home runs and drive in 200, I still want to vote for him for the MVP just because of the A's record. So I want to see, to me, uh, he's a difference maker. And, and uh, you know, with the Astros be sitting like this, they wouldn't have a 13-game lead without Alvarez. Uh, you know, neither would the Yankees without Judge. And uh, so, yeah, those, those guys, those guys are, are viable players. It's not just stats. You know, why are we going to have votes if we're just going to go on the best stats year after year? It's, you know, helping your team win, you know, clubhouse leadership and things like that. You know, that's what made those – when the Giants were winning the uh, World Series there, you know, uh, last decade when they went three of the five, you know, they, they had great leadership in there and stuff. You could argue uh, how much he meant. You know, like Brandon Crawford last year, I think he got a first-place vote in the uh, – so, you know, finished fourth. And I love that. You know, Crawford didn't have the best numbers by any means, but you take Crawford away from that team, they weren't winning 107 games. You know, the All-Star game coming up here on the 19th, uh, are you going to be in L.A.? I will be. You know, I, I made this case yesterday on the A's Clubhouse show, our post-game show, when we heard that Paul Blackburn was going to be an All-Star. I can make a case his numbers actually deserve it. I mean, this year on the road, Bob, he's 5-0 and with a 1.28 ERA on the road, which is the lowest road ERA of any starting pitcher in baseball. If you look at his numbers, 6-4, and 3.36, pitching behind a team where he's got no offense for the first part of the year. The defense was terrible. Uh, before we get into the overall All-Star game, what do you think of Paul Blackburn representing the A's in Los Angeles? No, I think it's fine. Uh, I didn't realize those road stats until you uh... – on me. But yeah, and I do like the fact that every team is represented. 
uh, I think, you know, kids stay up and say, oh, let me watch uh, my uh, favorite team and my favorite player to see if he gets in the game, that sort of thing. I think it's good for baseball, just an exhibition. So, no, I mean, you're right. I mean, you know, what's interesting was they, I mean, obviously that was the MLB choice for Blackburn, but I found interesting, remember now the players vote for the uh, pitchers in, uh, in the reserves, and they did not vote for Shohei Atani to make the all-star team as a pitcher. They didn't vote for Clayton Kershaw either. And so it's, it's just interesting. MLB had to step in and, and put those guys on the roster. So it's, it's kind of interesting the way the players view things than the rest of the public. You know, when we were growing up, Bob, you had to go to games to vote, right? You had your ballot, and you'd sit right. there throughout the game, right? And we'd sit there, and you'd get, you, you know, you'd ask your mom for like a pen, and you're, you know, you're voting as many cards as you can. So that to me was when it really was the fan vote. The fans are out the game; they're actually physically punching a ballot, handing it into the usher. The usher then has to take the ballots and turn them in. Now it's <laughs> now it's all about computers. I don't even know if it really is the fan vote anymore. How do you feel about the way we go about it now? Well, it's so confusing. How about this year? You know, when, okay, you're, you're voting like two or three times, uh, you know, of the starters. And, okay, once the starters are in, then you're uh, voting for who's the, uh, you know, who's, who's the next that should be in, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I like the thing, you know, if you want to do this electronic thing, fine. But do it at balance, too. Remember, they always have the big uh, – you know, cardboard ballot thing at yeah. ballparks too. You, you know, you put in there and stuff like that. It made it fun uh, instead of you know, who can out who can out trick people the most. I mean, the Blue Jays had an unbelievable showing. Is that because they're drawing well, or is it because everybody got out? You know, uh, the message like, okay, here's how you vote. You can vote 30 times and what have you. So it's just it's just not right. You know, if you want to do it that way, I understand now it's electronic age. But, yeah, I, I would still like to see the the written ballot as well. Yeah, when you're a kid, you felt like you were voting for the president. It was cool. You're like, I'm getting to vote. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Bob, great stuff as always. I mean, there's a reason why I'm paying, to, paying for the USA Today online. It's because of you, my friend. And thank you for all the years of support. You're the best in the business. Be well, be safe, and let's talk soon. All right, look forward to it. Thanks so much, Chris. I sure appreciate it. The great Bob Nightingale. And now we're going to talk draft. Here's Kylie McDaniel from ESPN.com. Do we have Kylie? Kylie, welcome back to Ace Cast Live. How are you? Doing great. How are you doing? We're doing good. When they put you on the track, man, and you're throwing in the bullpen, how are you? how's your data these days? Uh, not good. I got to pitch a couple times early in my high school career. I think when I didn't crack 80, they told me to stop. <laughs> they said enough's enough. You got to you got to cover the draft because you're not going to be in the draft. I went back to my high school because last year we had uh, in Tampa Prep we had the first um, first drafted player in the history of the school, which is like 50 years. And it was funny because like the, you know the kid Jose Pena got drafted by the Phillies, and he was like, "Oh, so you're one of the best players here?" I was like, "No, I was a terrible player here. You're you're the reason that any scouts know what my high school looks like." <laughs> <laughs> well, at this time of the year. Now it's changed, right? We used to be in June. Now we're in July. We're now around the All-Star game, the Futures game, the Home Run Derby. We got a lot going on in baseball. How do you feel about the draft being more highlighted than ever before? 
Uh, more highlighted like that, um, I'm, I'm in favor of that. I think the reason it is being held at this time of year is it sounds like the owners have basically decided we like having it at the All-Star game, all the, you know, that stuff, the Futures game, the celebrity stuff, home run derby, like having all that stuff together. It's convenient for us. We think it's helpful and everything sort of drafts off of each other. The front offices hate it because they have the trade deadline the week after. And this year, uniquely, they have the international draft thing to worry about in between the draft and the week later when you have the trade deadline. Uh, and for me, I've been scouting 2023 draft prospects for three weeks now. Uh, so it's a little annoying having to balance both of these. So, like, I don't necessarily love it. I think maybe doing it at Omaha around the College World Series might be, like, a, a little more of an ideal time for it to be sort of all amateur baseball uh, focused at one at one time and then kind of all crescendoing all at once without having to tie it into other stuff. But, you know, there's a couple decent good answers. And, you know, I guess I like going on TV and telling people what's what, so I'll take it. Well, I, you think about what you said, the international draft, and we've talked to David Forrest, our general manager, about it. He's in favor of it, but, like, he's like all of us. You know, they're, everybody's kind of in the dark of how this thing's going to go. It really is, you know, New York Major League Baseball negotiating with the Players Union. Uh, we had Jonathan Mayo on earlier today from MLB.com also, and and he was talking about, wow, man, this thing is, uh, this thing is just – it, how, how, is it one big draft? Is it just an international draft? I mean, how do you, you know, how do you start, you know, trying to get a kid from the Dominican is far different from a player in Japan. Just when, when you hear international draft, what are you thinking? What's the best way to go about this? Huge topic. Uh, we've had uh, multiple Zooms uh, with all the ESPN staff with, you know, Alton Gonzalez has done some writing, Jeff Pass has done some writing on it, uh, all of our editors, myself, I've done some behind the scenes stuff, I've been like loading up for a big feature about it once this sort of gets resolved one way or another. Um, the like short version of this is, I think it worked okay when I started doing this like 10, 12 years ago, where it was everyone commonly called it the Wild West, and it kind of was, and everybody, every team could spend whatever they wanted, and nobody had early deals because the prices tend to go up over time for the good players. And so nobody had a deal more than a couple months in advance. And like, it wasn't great. And there were some teams that didn't try at all, um, but it was fine. Uh, and then MLB wanted to put uh, cost controls in place because there were some of these players from Cuba and Japan that were getting, you know, tens of millions of dollars that were older and they didn't like that. So they want to put a cap on how much could be spent and sort of exert a little more control over the process. Uh, and then what happened is teams were like, well, if you're going to cap how much money we can spend, then we'll exercise how good we are by signing players earlier and earlier. So instead of three months early, we'll do it six months early. And then eventually got to 12 and 13 years old. And then the problem became that like steroids became an issue because if you can get a verbal deal at 13, you're incentivized to be on steroids and then get off by the time you sign and you won't test positive. And so they then had to have steroid testing on 13 year olds, which you're like, okay, regardless of how we got here, this is not the place we need to be. And that's where we are right now. We're now both sides are in favor of a draft of some sort, uh, and they're kind of quibbling over the money because fixing that current issue, uh, we can't go back to where we were because the league won't give away these sort of cost controls of knowing that it can never go above this number. And the teams are just like, well, this is obviously not a doable process. So, like, let's fix it so that, you know, everyone scouts everybody for, you know, 12 months before. We can trade picks. You pick the player. It's not exactly the same as a draft. They don't necessarily have the college commitments. And, you know, some of the market forces are a little different. We need to sort of account for that which is why the union wants to be more money involved. I'd like to think they're going to come to a conclusion, but everything I'm hearing is like, they're really far apart and I don't think they're going to be able to bridge that gap, which means they'll just get kicked, kicked the can down the road to the next CBA. So taking a 30 minute conversation and condensing it into like four or five minutes, that, that's my take. 
Well, the one thing I, I, you know, I wonder how you're going to deal with the Japanese players. How you going to? You still have the problem with some of these kids. They're indebted to multiple people that you hear about, which is very sad. There's hangers on at a different level, not what we see like in the NBA and the NFL, but. You know, you draft this kid and and he owes this person, this person, this person. I mean, it's really sad how they hang on to these young kids because everybody's trying to get out of the situation they're in and they're seeing this young child could be their way out. I, I just don't know how the how these drafts and I'm not expecting you to have all the answers, but it's just really complicated and messy. And it's like I think once people really understand how it has been going on, that it's kind of an ugly situation that uh, doesn't make baseball look really good. And I would say over half the people, because I've talked to a lot of them that are like involved in the negotiation, like the people that are actually throwing proposals back and forth, have never been down there to a baseball thing. Uh, one of the teams I worked for, the team president, asked me about it because I had a history of doing that. And he was like, oh, what do you think? And I like said what I thought. And he said what he thought. And I was like, oh, when's the last time you went down there? He's like, I've never been. And I'm like, you're one of the 30 guys like in the room deciding what the policy is. You've literally never been before. But you have meetings about we want to spend $7 million on this academy and $4 million on this player. And, you know, it's just sort of second nature in, in, in one way. But in going down there and um, interacting with it, it's very different. And I would also say, um, to, to counter some of the stuff you said before, like there are agents in uh, domestic situations where they'll come in, represent a high school kid in the draft. And, like, they essentially just, like, make phone calls for six months and, like, give advice and get 5% of their bonus. And in Latin America, there are examples of very good Buscones and agents and trainers where they like house, feed, and like turn these these, these kids into men for four years and they get 35%. And I'm like, it feels like they're doing way more than seven times the work than the agents domestically are doing who are just making some phone calls and can represent 14 kids at the same time. Um, those guys are, you know, essentially the the tutor, the baseball coach, the, you know, the you know sort of the you know, leader of young men, like the ones that do it the right way. I think they're kind of getting, you know, what they, what they're being paid for. It's just the bad examples of taking advantage of everybody, which is also very hard to legislate. Like that's endemic to the situation with the good ones come the bad ones. And yeah, the bad ones like really makes you cringe. You're just like, man, there's gotta be a better way to do this. Well, and if you do well in international signings, look no further than the Houston Astros. I mean, you can, whatever your draft is, but if you can dominate in the internet, if you can do well in the draft and the, the international signings, I mean, the lifeblood for your organization to your big league level. I mean, you can talk about that. I mean, it's just, it's unreal, especially like what we've seen Houston be, be able to do. And they historically don't spend, you know, the giant two, three, $4 million up front. Like they basically they're it's, it's similar to what I sort of talked about when I worked for a team and they had me do this big long study where I went through every signing in the history of international baseball and they said, all right, what are your recommendations based on this data? And what I recommended is almost exactly what they do. So I'm imagining they did the same study I did, which is uh, if you really think a pitcher is like one of the best ones you've ever seen, then, you know, pay him a million, million, half, whatever you want to do. Uh, but just sign a bunch of $10,000 pitchers and like hold them all for two or three years. See if you can get him to throw harder. If you can't, then unfortunately, it's, you know, time to get another one. Uh, and they've turned a number of like ten dollars to $50,000 pitchers into like good big leaguers, like even more than any other team's been able to do. So obviously they're their development process works really well with those guys. And they also, if you go back to the very, very beginning of this, like what was the first big uh, like signing class? It was like late 80s, early 90s. The Astros had the first one. They had Richard Hidalgo, Bobby Abreu, and like two or three other big leaguers in their very first class they signed down there uh, when it was more than just, you know, a player here and there when it was like signed eight or 10 guys. They were the first team like getting the most out of Dominican Republic and like a little bit later out of Venezuela. So yeah, they've been sort of ahead of the curve for a couple decades now. All right, so we got to go back to that. If I, if I brought you in, I gave you a call, and I said, hey, 
I need recommendations. Let's just say it's the Oakland A's. What do you recommend we do in Venezuela, in the Dominican Republic? Like, like what is what is the key strategies down there for finding big leaguers? Uh, I think it kind of depends what you're trying to get out of it and what you think your personnel, you know, scouts, uh, executives, uh, data people, what they're good at uh, and kind of lean into that. Because there are some teams like the Yankees, the Rays, the Dodgers that are generally seen as the most successful teams down there. And what they'll do is they'll go see the, you know, in the current situation, which, you know, may change, uh, but they'll go see the best 13, 14, 15 year olds, try to identify who's the very tippy top of the market. Uh, and they feel confident in that part of the market. And they'll basically every year when there's the five highest bonuses uh, or the five best players at any given point, they'll be like half the teams or those three um, that are very good at that part of the market. And sometimes they think the third best player in the class, they can get for the 28th biggest bonus. And I'm like, oh, okay, we'll definitely sign him because we have like a divergent opinion on that player. And then whatever money we have left, we'll go sign some lesser players. And like all of those teams have like multiple big leaguers from like the $50,000 to $100,000 sort of leftover range. Uh, there are other teams like, you know, I mentioned Houston, where they're just not interested. They'll they'll take the older Cuban guys where they can feel better about that, um, about that level of data, taking like a Pedro Leon, who's in AAA right now, and be like, okay, we know that guy's going straight to AA. We know what that guy is. Uh, the White Sox uh, do this a lot. The Blue Jays have done it historically, uh, where it's like basically any good Cuban player, 18 and up, they're going to be near the top of the, of the market on them in terms of what they want to pay for them because they kind of want guys that they can feel better about, how close they are to the big leagues, and get them there quickly, maybe have immediate trade value, whereas the 16-year-old players have, you know, run a 40% strikeout rate in rookie ball, can't really trade that guy. Um, and then there's other teams that like to sign 16-year-olds, but like don't go over 500K. And there's some teams like uh, St. Louis, Colorado that have done that and done it pretty successfully. Philadelphia, when they go seven figures, doesn't necessarily go that well. When they go three to 500K, they've got like multiple all-stars doing that. Um, so I think you have to profile your own staff or the staff you can get figure out what they're best at and then lean into it. Uh, and there's like, you know, I just described like five different ways to do it. Those all, if you can execute at a high level, uh, those are all viable ways to do it. It's yeah. not like, you know, the NFL where it's like, well, if you don't have a great quarterback, it's almost impossible to win. It's like, no, you can win in that market in a lot of ways. Yeah. Kind of what you're saying is you don't have to break the bank on a guy to win. Sounds like it, you cast a bigger net and get more fish and you got a better chance. Well, and you're taking on so much risk there. You need to have some certainty in your people and your process and the kid and all that kind of stuff to feel like you're going to get a good result. And some teams like just go, you know, like Kool-Aid man flying through the wall, like, hey, we're going straight to the top of the market. We need to like plant a flag. And it's like, if you're trying to plant a flag. That means you haven't spent $5 million before. You don't have the process. You don't know if you're going to be good at that. You're probably going to waste about $10 million finding out how to be good at that. And we've seen a lot of teams do that. Like the the teams that get good returns at the top of the market have usually done it before and have people that have done it before and they know the process. And uh, because there's like so much more unknown about these players, I mean, we go see high school players and sophomores, they've already committed to SEC schools. Like they've already been sorted through a couple of times. So it's like harder to be wrong. And and down there, like it's the purest form of scouting. You just walk out on the field, somebody says, hi, this is my name, this is my age. And you get to watch me play usually in a workout, not in a game. And it is the hardest thing you can do. Like, it's, it's amazing to me that there are guys that over a 10-year period can, like, see kids twice, give them $3 million, and be right more than other people. Like, it, it seems impossible, but there are teams that are good at that. Washington would be another example where they've had some high-profile misses, but, like, when you hit on, like, Soto and uh, Victor Robles, and I'm sure you can think of some of the other guys, Luis Garcia has gotten to the big leagues. Like, their, their hits are some of the craziest hits you've ever seen. 
when you look at this draft, you know, we'll, we'll say it's it's a high school heavy draft. It's a heavy draft for college players. Where do you see this draft? Uh, it is the worst college pitching draft in a long time, maybe a decade. And it's not because the talent's not there. The two guys that I think would have been those uh, college pick high school or sorry, the college pitcher picks between like picks five and 15. I think it was going to be Connor Prelip, lefty at Alabama. He missed his entire season recovering from Tommy John surgery. And then Carson Wisenhunt, a lefty out of East Carolina, uh, who missed the season with a PED suspension. Um, I think those were the two guys that were going to emerge and then obviously did not. Some of the other guys that might have emerged was Peyton Paulette out of Arkansas, missed the whole season with Tommy John, Reggie Crawford, lefty up to 100 with a plus breaking ball out of UConn. Missed the season with Tommy John, Landon Sims, Mississippi State, tried to transfer from looking like Craig Kimbrell to being a starter this year. He blew out. He had Tommy John. I think you're sensing a theme here. Um, so it's like yeah. on draft day, where they're going to be drafted, all, you know, expectations are pretty low, really bad group. Um, but I think the talent's there. It's just some of these guys are going to essentially not be slowed down by Tommy John, but they're all going to get moved down 10, 20, 30 picks from where they were before they were injured. So that's something to look for is I think there's going to, if there's, if you're looking for what demographic is going to go lower, has the chance to surprise some people. Hunter Barco, a lefty out of Florida, was going to go late first round. That looks like he'll go late second round because he blew out. Um, that list seems to be never ending. Cole Phillips, the high school kid, blew out this spring. Looked like he was going to go late first. Now he looks like he might end up going to Arkansas. Um, I think that's where you're going to see the like surprises um, is, is from that pitching group of everyone trying to sort through all of the overslot high school pitchers. It's a very deep group. And then all of the injured pitchers, which is, I think, bordering on a dozen players right now. God, Tommy John used to be such a disaster. And oh, Tommy John, this is horrible. And now we just we throw it out like oh, he's had one Tommy John. Oh, I was in high school. It's in college. Like it's like no big deal. Is that is that does that scare you? How do you feel about that? Well, yeah, and the conversation with Connor Prelip was, oh, we were ready to take him in the top five or ten picks, and now we can get him 15th overall. We're getting a discount. And, like, we think a lot of teams look at that discount in 10, 12 picks, like whatever it is, two and a half, three million dollars. They're like, well, that discount is higher than we think it should be. So we see an opportunity for value here because we normally pick in the back half of the first round, and now we get a top ten talent. And if he would have pitched 15 games this year, he would not be available. So we're, like, taking advantage of the situation. I think teams – I mean, the data says that, like – getting your velocity back is something like 80, 85% and getting your velocity and command back is a little more rare and coming back just as good as you were all the way across the board and maybe a little bit better is maybe a coin flip. Um, but like, we haven't seen a lot of, I mean, since going back to like Brady Aiken, like guys that get Tommy John generally come back like close to what they were that like 85, 90% of getting the arm speed back is generally true. I didn't even mention, by the way, Kamar Rocker, who obviously didn't sign last year because of medical concerns that haven't quite been fleshed out, but then he had his shoulder surgery and is now back to stuff in command looking the same as last year when he was a top 10 prospect. And now the question is, where does he go? I would imagine somewhere in the top 30 picks. So he's another guy that his value is now a little bit lower because of what's happened in the last year in an injury. But obviously some people think he is a premium, premium talent. And this is a chance to buy low on him when he was promised $6 million last year. And his price this year may be half that. And he's pitching roughly the same. So there's a way to look at that and say there's a tremendous uh, position for value. You know, it's tough to project anything at, you know, so you start getting into the late teens and into the 20s because who knows who goes in front of them. A's are 19th. When you look at the A's, what are you thinking about for their draft? So they've been tied a lot to college players. Uh, you mentioned David Force. I actually was standing next to him at a game and figured out who he was there to watch. And he kind of rolled his eyes at me like, hey, could you do me a favor and not like 
put me on blast right now on the guy that I'm here to see. Because <laughs> I've, I've seen him, like, I, I remember I saw him in a game see Michael Chavis in high school, and they ended up not drafting Michael Chavis. But, like, him watching the players, I mean, they're taking him. Like, I'm sure he has a list of eight or ten guys to see, and that, you know, they're taking one of them, and he was at one of those games. Um, but there's another college players at the SEC tournament. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of players that I think have been sort of tied in that range. They all tend to be college guys, tend to be not lower upside, but, like, not necessarily the, the guy with a bunch of 70 and 80 tools, more of the, like, very good baseball player type. So, like, Drew Gilbert at Tennessee, uh, J- uh, Justin Campbell, righty at Oklahoma State, um, Gabriel Hughes, righty at Gonzaga. All those guys have a bunch of above-average-to-plus tools. So they're perfectly good players uh, and capable of being above-average everyday types. Uh, Cooper Jerpy, uh, low-slot lefty, if you squint, kind of looks like Chris Sale. Obviously, you have to squint. Um, at Oregon State, I think he's also in that mix. Connor Freelip, the lefty I mentioned out of Alabama. Uh, and then the other college pitcher in that range, Kate Horton out of Oklahoma, he was seen as like a late second to third rounder entering the postseason and then went on one of the like, craziest tears we've ever seen. And now it looks like he has a real chance to go in the first round. And if he doesn't, it'll be because he turns down huge money to then hopefully be the first pitcher off the board next year, um, which is like his leverage. Because he was coming off of Tommy John surgery, young for the class, was good over – you know, five, six starts late in the season. I think he thinks with a full season, he goes in the top 10 picks. So there's another situation after a Tommy John, he's already pitched after it, but another chance for teams to take him maybe in the middle of first round and think they're getting a great value. Cause if he would have pitched another month, I think he'd be going higher than where he's looking right now, which again, is that like middle of the first round. Man, A's fans would love to hear about a bopper. Just give me a guy that's going to come up. He's going to come up fast, and he's going to be a legit offensive player. If you could be that genie and bring that guy, they would love that. The players I like most that I think will come the fastest do not have huge power, so I don't think that perfectly fits what you're saying. But if if what you want is power, (laughs) it sounds like you do. Uh, The two guys for you, I feel like I'm doing the Stefan from SNL. If If you like clubs, you'll love. Uh, yeah. right fielder out of uh, Vanderbilt, uh, Spencer Jones, six foot seven, turned down $2 million out of high school as both a pitcher and hitter. Uh, didn't play a whole lot due to injuries first few years at Vanderbilt. This year posted uh, double plus exit velos, hit double digit homers, uh, is sort of jaw dropping level athlete, like has 30 plus home run power, is also an average runner. The easy comp, even though he's lefty and Aaron Judge is righty, is Aaron Judge. Their numbers are shockingly similar, and Jones did it in the SEC. Judge did it in the Mountain West at Fresno State. Um, and the Yankees took a 25 and have been tied to Jones. So there's some, some chatter that they may be trying to do the same thing, but he might not get to 25. I have him ranked 20th. Obviously, the A's are right there at 19. If you want power, uh, either, either Spencer Jones or Tennessee uh, right fielder Jordan Beck. Also, uh, some people throwing out names like Jason Wirth, Hunter Renfro, that kind of guy. A little bit of swing and miss concern, but tremendous athlete, huge power, maybe 30, 35 home run kind of power, performing the SEC, but a little bit of swing and miss concern. So that's why he may be available at 19. Uh, both of those guys could go ahead of Oakland, but at least one of them will get there, and there's a chance both of them are there. Do you expect for the trading deadline any any explosions, any big names, any like, wow, I can't believe that happened moments? Uh, well... I, I think Luis Castillo with the Reds is the sort of big name, the guy that everyone's waiting to see. Every team in, in the race wants to be able to add an ace. Um, I think he's sort of the big the big wild card here. Do they decide to move him now? Are they able to meet his price? And I think otherwise, like the sort of expectation going into this deadline is it won't have the crazy fireworks that you want to see. Obviously, every year that we say that, there ends up being a number of deals and deals we didn't see coming. And, you know, the, remember the Zach Grinky deal when he got traded to uh, Houston was like after the horn. No one thought it would happen. And it turns out it came together in like 12 hours. 
Uh, there's always a couple of those floating around, but I would say, yeah, this is not quite the, uh, the, this past off season's uh, winter free agent market where it was just nine figure deals and shortstops and star liver players galore where every team could, you know, get one of those guys. It's not quite that level of expectation, uh, but I, it sounds like there is enough to keep us interested and there'll be plenty of moves uh, for contenders with Luis Castillo again being the headliner there. Yeah, as of yesterday, you had 20 teams out of the 30 who are either leading their division, leading a wild card, or three games or less from a playoff berth. So, I mean, 20 out of the 30 teams are in this thing right now. Hopefully, it's going to be exciting. Yeah, no, I, I think the uh, additional wild cards, well, the, the Bob Costas of the world may not love that uh, we're taking away some of the romanticism of you have to like win your division to make the playoffs or else you go home. I kind of like the idea of more teams being more competitive and, you know, being in the mix yeah. until later in the season, uh, even if some of the teams running away with their division may not have quite as much to play for. They're still trying to win a World Series, too. Like, they're still trying to add players here and there. I like the idea of more teams uh, being involved late in the season, more fan bases having more reasons to go to the park. Yeah, Bob Costas has a press pass, and he goes to games for free. I'm trying to do this for the people who actually pay to go to games and drive interest, and that's what we need. And And I say this. Uh, Kylie all the time. I've never seen a sport. I don't care if it's football. I don't care if it's the NCAA tournament. I don't care if it's hockey, the NBA. I've never seen adding postseason bursts ever hurt a league and ever hurt a league financially. Have never seen that ever before in American professional sports. Yeah, the only negative is what we're talking about is the conversation of is this changing the sport too much? But the idea of over like multiple decades, did the sport change too much? That's never the problem. I and mean, look at the NBA has been quick to change. And it's, you know, right there with uh, football as the number one sport. Baseball has been slow to change and has gone from top sport to probably third sport in terms of interest. It's not exactly the reason it's happened. It's not 100 percent of the explanation, but I think they're connected in a way that you can't kind of uh, disintertwine them. Great stuff. We always appreciate it. Enjoy the draft, and we'll talk to you soon. Yep, hopefully people ignore that I made up a word there at the end. (laughs) (laughs) You're good, my friend. Take care. (laughs) Yep, have a good one. Kylie McDaniel from ESPN does a great job. And then from one draft expert to another, this guy will hold it down for the broadcast on MLB Network, Talking Draft. Here is Jonathan Mayo from MLB.com. Jonathan, it's great to have you on A's Cast Live again. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? We're doing great. And this is your time of the year, the draft. Whenever we talk to the draft experts, it doesn't matter. In all my years doing talk radio, whether it's football or basketball, this is the time. It's your Super Bowl. You got to be fired up. Sure. We'll go with fired up. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, it being over All-Star Weekend, it's uh, it's a lot because you got the Futures game, too. We don't want to forget yeah. those guys and uh, and the draft. Uh, but, yeah, it's an exciting time of year. Uh, just a lot to do, a lot of names to, to juggle, um, but I wouldn't want it any other way. Yeah, we were talking about it yesterday. You guys, MLB.com, had a great article, and obviously Frankie Montas, uh, his health is a big question here for the trading deadline. But the next three weeks, we've got the Futures game. We've got Home Run Derby, and we've got some firepower in Home Run Derby. we got the All-Star game at Historic Dodger Stadium. Next thing you know, it's the draft, and then we have the trading deadline. I mean, the next three weeks going to be pretty hectic in our game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's exciting. I think it's a fun time. We'll get to see which teams are you know trying to go for it now and then what they try to do to – you know, replenish or rebuild their farm system via the draft, or if they are end up being sellers at the trade deadline, bringing in prospects that way. 
Do you like what baseball has done really highlighting the draft? I know people on our end go, "Eh, I liked it in June because we'd have our guys already playing by now. But do you like how they've pushed it back and it's now with the All-Star game? I think there are a lot of positives to have it with the All-Star game. You know, I like this year, last year, the Futures game and the draft were at the same time. And as someone who broadcasts both, that was a lot. But, uh, you know, so I like that the Futures game is Saturday and the draft starts Sunday. So the draft will sort of stand alone on on Sunday when there are no games on. I think because I've been doing this so long and I talk to scouts all the time, uh, we're all our brains are all wired in a certain way for that June draft. So this last yeah. month, has been, even though this is the second year of doing it, has been strange. That said, I think it adds interest. They're trying to continue to grow the draft. It makes it a more exciting event. Having been in the theater where they had it in, in Denver last year, it was exciting to have a venue like that with a lot of fans and a lot of energy and a good amount of players showing up. So I, I think that even if it's a little bit strange and maybe it would be nicer to get some of those draftees out playing a little bit more, uh, I think overall it's a net game. We saw this a few years ago where we started seeing football players where they said, we're going to sit out the bowl game don't want to get hurt for the draft. Uh, we dealt with it here in the Bay Area with Christian McCaffrey at Stanford. He was uh, one of the Heisman Trophy finalists. And, and everybody was like, whoa, is this really good? And it hasn't. It's taken off a little bit. You know, we've even seen guys with Alabama not play. We're now seeing that enter the baseball draft a little bit. Are you concerned? I know David Force, our general manager, I've asked him. He doesn't like it. Uh, are you concerned we're going to see more and more of this going forward? <laughs> I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's going to be, I don't think it's going to become as, as major of a problem as it seems to have become in football. Um, you know, and maybe you'll see the occasional pitcher just because the injury risk shut it down. And that's what, that's kind of basically what happened. There's one high school arm who kind of shut things down earlier than expected. Um, and that's surprising. And listen, it, that may hurt his draft stock when all is said and done because you think a lot of teams would rather see him pitch for his team in the playoffs and things like that, but he's very, very talented. I hope it doesn't become a trend. I don't think it will because there's still so much unknown about these players. I think some of these college football players, and I'm, I'll be the first to admit, I'm not a huge college football guy, but the, there, there's so much more data and so much more track record of what they're able to do that them sitting at a game isn't necessarily indicative of anything, and they're also going to be asked and counted on to produce right out of the gate in that first year after being drafted. When baseball, uh, you know, there's going to be a few years before you see even an advanced college guy make it to the big leagues, but we haven't seen any college players, you know, shut things down ahead of the draft like that. So, the big question about USC and UCLA going to the Big Ten is not going to be one for you. No, no. You know, we've talked a little bit about it in terms of the baseball world, but uh, in terms of football, it matters not to me. We've got some uh, big leaguers kids, it looks like, at the top of this draft this year. And, I mean, if your dad's Andrew Jones, I like your DNA. It's, uh, it's a great nature and nurture kind of combination deal with a lot of these guys. And this is officially the I feel really old draft. Yeah. Uh, you know, Justin Crawford was Carl Crawford's kid. I covered Carl Crawford in the Futures game, so when he was a prospect. So it just means I've been doing this to him. But, yeah, Drew Jones is amazingly talented. Uh, he is what you would expect in center field. You know, he gets comparisons to his dad, who only went out and won, what, 10 gold gloves. 
Uh, he's got a chance to hit. There's going to be power there. He does everything real easy. He could play shortstop. He played some shortstop for travel ball. He, you would never want him to do that because he's so good in the outfield. But that just shows you what kind of athlete he is. He is a special, special kind of player who has a, a, a feel for the game that comes with having grown up as Andrew Jones's dad. And we have seen that whether any, you know, it's been recently making you feel old is every single time the Toronto Blue Jays come to town. <laughs> and I remember doing interviews, you know, when you're talking to, to Kevin Vizio, go, man, I used to interview your dad all the time for pregame uh, back in my days when I was doing the Giants. But, you know, when, when you start thinking about these kids, and we have it a lot here, we've dealt with it with the Golden State Warriors, when you're talking about guys who grew up, their dads were in the NBA, Steph and Clay, they grew up around it. There's something to that. And when you look at the scouting, do you bring that into it going, it's not, the moment won't be too big. You know, Ken Griffey Jr., these guys grew up in these clubhouses. They understand the game from a very early age. Yeah, I think it, it- it can't not figure into it. You don't want to put too much weight in it because just because you have the last name of someone who played the game doesn't automatically make you a first-round talent or a superstar. But the guys who have shown they're talented, they're not going to be bothered by being a top, either the number one overall pick or a top five pick. And you've got Matt Holiday's kid also. Even Elijah Green, whose dad Eric was a Pro Bowl tight end, gets that part of it in terms of understanding the, the spotlight. But those who grew up, even if they didn't grow up around the game, they have a much better idea of what the process is going to be like. Because even if you're Andrew Jones's kid, you still have to go likely to rookie ball, to A ball. You need to you know, make stops along the way. Just because of your last name, you're not going to suddenly get put in the big leagues, nor should you developmentally. So the grind aspect of it, no matter who you are, I think is something that uh, will is probably hammered into them. You know, at a certain point in time when it looks like they're going to play the game at the next level. So even if they didn't say roam around the clubhouses, which a lot of them did, uh, they just have that innate sense of what's, you know, what's to come in front of them, how to get through a 162 game season, uh, which is often the biggest thing for for amateur players uh, to go from even a college season to a minor league season of 140 games is a lot. And having that institutional knowledge because of of your family helps not to mention as you said the the dna that is often passed down you know we're looking at the draft and and players and timelines you know there's still people that believe there's x amount of at bats there's x amount of innings you're going to need in the minor leagues and you know i i admit in, in years you know we're just going off a four year stretch where the a's were in the playoffs three out of four years even last year when we didn't make it we won 86 games. You're not really thinking about the minor league guys as much. But now that we're the, we've got the worst record in baseball, you're like, all right, where's the help coming from? When are these guys going to get here? You want to rush guys. And you'll see a guy like Julio Rodriguez. This guy's hitting bombs against us every single game in Seattle, and he's 21 years old. So are now our kids more advanced? Are we expecting them to get here faster if they're legit major leaguers? Or are we still trying to be patient and say, you need 1,500 at-bats or X amount of innings as a pitcher? I don't know that there's a number. Uh, I think that, you know, I don't know that you should ever use Julio Rodriguez as the the sort of uh, case study because there are always guys, you know, like that who do it much faster than than you would expect. I do think that the gap between amateur baseball and professional baseball has narrowed somewhat. Um, 
maybe maybe not as much in terms of internationally, just because those guys are so young. Julio Rodriguez was 16 when he signed, so you never you never know what that kid is going to become when he starts becoming a man, which is what Julio Rodriguez did in the Mariners system. But even you know high school with all the with all the showcases and the ability to show what you can do uh, against very good competition, even if you're from you know, cold weather state where you don't get it in the spring uh, and, and even and then the college game, the program, I think the gap has shrunk somewhat. Now, that's just not a universal thing where and nor have I done a, a huge study, but I, I anecdotally, it feels to me like guys are getting to the big leagues a little bit faster. I don't know that there's an expectation. I think that each organization has different benchmarks that they want their players to, to meet. From a development standpoint, I just think that players are often hitting those benchmarks more quickly than they once did. You know, I've learned over the years of my career, and even a guy that used to work at ESPN used to be my radio partner, Rick Buecher, covering the NBA at ESPN, used to talk about putting out his mock drafts saying, you know, I was going to have to put out like 15 mock drafts. So my first one isn't what I really thought compared to like my 15th is what I thought was going to happen. Baseball, I came to imagine what putting a mock draft uh, together is like. That's why it's not like, hey, at number 19, what do you see the A's getting? But when you start to look at where the A's are picking, a lot of value there. Do you still, is it high school? Is it college? What do you see for the A's at 19? Yeah, it's, uh, I think I'm working currently as we speak on my sixth mock draft and Jim Callis, my colleague has also done five. So we've, we've done a lot and it's, yeah, we, we work hard on on it and we want to try to get it right. And what we often say about them, especially early on, but even this one is we want to put a name with each team where someone with the team isn't going to look at it and say, well, there's no way we would take that guy. So, that you know, we'll do one last one like Saturday night into Sunday morning right before the draft where hopefully we'll be able to shake some trees and, and get some legitimate information. It's tough when the team at the top really holds things close to the vest and no one really knows what the Orioles are going to do. As for the A's, uh, there is some talent. I think there's a second tier of college hitters that make uh, that could make a lot of sense. Um, we've... <laughs> for, um, let me see, like six or seven mocks in a row. We've put uh, Dylan Beavers, who's from Cal. Uh, and now, some of that may be just a little bit of geographic laziness, if I'm uh, giving full disclosure. But, you know, I think the A's have some interest. He's got an intriguing power-speed combination. You know, has a chance to be, you know, a college bat with, uh, with a number of ways to impact the game. But they could go, you know, in a, a whole bunch of different ways. There's some high school hitters, which they've shown they're not afraid to do, that they that could be right around there, and, and some college arms as well. The college arm crop has really been thinned, or at least made really much more difficult to pinpoint because so many of them are hurt or coming off of injuries, you know, are rehabbing from surgery. Uh, so, you know, there will be a, a bucket of those kinds of players that if the A's – are willing or any of the teams that are picking in that sort of 17 to 25 range say they could go that route. It's just a, a question of your, your willingness to take on that kind of risk. Well, we do know that uh, the A's have spent some time down the street at Cal Berkeley uh, at, at these games. So not going to be shocked if, if Beavers and we've asked David Force and he jokes about it, uh, but we've said, oh, you spent a lot of time over at Cal. Is that what we're looking at? But, you know, the one thing you can like somebody all, all you want. We can see this in any draft, but 
he's got to be there when you pick. Sure. And I mean, and listen, that, that's an easy get for anyone in the A's organization to go to Cal to watch a game. Um, you know, just like people would always make a big deal about a general manager going to see some kid play in Florida until you realize that their spring training home was 10 minutes from there. It's like, it's good in information. You don't want to put too much weight into the fact that, wow, an A's executive went to Cal to, to watch baseball. Um, because not only could you see Dylan Beavers, there are other players to see also, and it's easy to get there. Uh, you know, so sure there's interest, uh, you know, yes, they've scouted him a lot. That does not mean even if he is there, that Dylan Beavers is a, you know, lockdown. This is the guy you're going to get. Now, if they take him, I want you to edit this part out. (laughs) Uh, two more questions for you. With let, let's do a little college with the mega conferences, kind of they're going to happen. We got Texas and OU now going to the SEC. The SEC has now become a dominant conference. I played baseball at San Jose State back in the day when it was Fullerton, Long Beach, Fresno State. We were the Big West. We were the dominant conference, sending all these teams, you know, like Mark Kotze, Phil and Evan, and these guys. Um, how's this going to play, do you think, for college baseball when you have? Teams in L.A. are in the same conference with uh, Rutgers in New Jersey. You got Maryland. You got teams on the East Coast. Like, how's this going to play? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the interesting thing without having spent too much time digging into that that move in particular. For me, they obviously weren't thinking about baseball when they decided to make that the move to the Big Ten yeah. because that's a step down from the Pac-12 uh, in terms of baseball. Uh, I think the SEC – uh, even without those additions, uh, was still probably the best conference in, in college baseball. But the Pac-12 was really, really good, uh, you know, right there with the ACC. And, you know, that move, I think, makes it, you know, it makes it a little bit harder to evaluate what good performances mean. You know, obviously, you're still scouting the players for what their swing looks like, what their delivery looks like, how their stuff plays. Um, and their data, you know, that they, they can get their hands on in terms of exit velo, launching, all that kind of stuff, which is universal. But if you're trying to get a sense of, hmm, is this going to work, and you're not seeing the same quality of pitching that you once were, it, it's, I think it's another challenge. But, it's you know, scouts have been doing this all along, you know, finding players where you had no idea because there, there's some projection that you have to do, I think, for whatever reason, Brandon Nimmo, the Mets pops in my mind. The guy played in Wyoming where there was no high school baseball. He was a first round pick. So scouts are as, as much of a crapshoot as the draft is. And as much as it doesn't work out, especially as you get further on in the draft, they're really, really good at evaluating players for who they are, regardless of where they're playing. I will end on this. Uh, recently on the David Force show, we asked him, are you in favor of an international draft? I've read a little bit about it. I know we're in negotiations between baseball and the Players Association. David Force's answer was yes, I'm in favor of it. I don't know how the other 29 teams feel. I don't know how you feel. Where are you on the international draft? Should we have one? Would it be better for the game? Now, so I think this is two different questions. Are you suggesting that there'd be an international draft? Or are you suggesting that there'd be one draft? Like, is it one or two drafts? Either or, you tell me. I, I, so, yeah, I, uh, you know, 
I think that what they've done with the international system, it's kind of introducing the bonus pools to kind of curb spending and, and really to try to make sure that people aren't skirting the rules as much as possible has been largely positive. Um, I think one of the issues, and I remember talking to an international scout a while ago, is that because each country really does things so differently, trying to put it into one system is hard enough. And they've done that a lot with a lot of the showcases that they're doing. It's much more difficult to sort of uncover a, a, a gem, you know, although it's the same as a 40th round draft pick. You don't hide the players anymore. So question of scouting them, but there's so many showcase events and combines uh, in Latin America that that's less and less likely. So we're kind of moving in that direction. The thing that I think gets difficult is how you could possibly compare a 16 year old from some small village in the Dominican Republic to a 21 year old at Stanford say, you know, and that's what they're going to have to do if it becomes one large draft. So I, I guess if I were to vote and I don't have a vote in any way, shape or form, I we're going to make you commissioner for the day. I, this I is might, your decision. Oh, there's so many things I could do in one day. So <laughs> careful. Um, I would have, I would have two separate drafts just because I think merging them from a logistics standpoint would be really, really difficult. That makes sense. I think you're, I mean, when you took, when you put it that way, how am I comparing a kid in the, in the Dominican Republic to a kid at Stanford? Yeah. I mean, I mean listen, it's, it's hard to compare a, a kid. Minor to too. We're talking about a minor. Right. I mean, it's hard to compare a kid, you know, a 21 year old junior who's three years of talent at Stanford or, or Vanderbilt to a, a 17 year old from uh, rural Alabama you know, or whatever it is, or someone who hasn't played against really good competition. It's some of the same thing, but not quite as, uh, not quite as spread out. How international scouts do what they do is remarkable to me. I mean, you remember when you were 16, I didn't resemble anything what I looked like by the time I was 21. So it's, you know, the, the ability to project and figure out who are going to be the good players, you know, even in the domestic, you know, scouting is hard. The international scouting to me is, you know, it's such a Herculean task. Yeah. And there's politics involved and what, how you can get in and out of Venezuela. And then you yep. got the politics with, with the Japanese league and Japanese players. I mean, well, that's so a whole, that's a whole different thing. It's crazy. And, and yet that's why someone like me, it's like, I don't know. I'm just waiting for someone to tell us how it's going to work. But uh, I just know from our, uh, David Ford said he'd like to see it, so we'll see. But uh, have a great broadcast. Have a great draft. You got the biggest ratings, right, you've ever gotten before the last draft? Sure. I, you know, I try not to pay attention to that kind of stuff. But I do think, you know, one of the benefits of All-Star Week, you know, and we've, it's been on TV since MLB, you know, pretty much since MLB Network came into being. It was on ESPN for a couple of years. But it grows in popularity each year. There's a lot more college baseball on TV. So I think there's more curiosity. So, I expect if you don't set records every year, it's going to continue to grow in terms of people at least wanting to check it out. Hey, great stuff. It's always awesome to have you on the program. Have a great draft, and we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. He is the man, Jonathan Mayo from MLB.com, breaking down the draft. We'd like to thank Bob Nightingale, Kylie McDaniel, and Jonathan Mayo for stopping by A's Cast Live and being on A's Unfiltered. Now back to A's Cast, powered by iHeartRadio. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.